You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Matthew chapter 16. I want to invite you to join us. Uh, If you have a Bible or a smartphone, find yourself there in Matthew chapter 16. We've been walking now for over a year through the gospel of Matthew and Uh, Matthew, who once was an outsider, a tax collector, uh, the worst of the worst, according to to probably most of his religious friends, is called to Jesus, and and as a result, he later writes this gospel. Literally, good news is what the word gospel means, And, and so we're in the 16th chapter. Now, the 15th and 16th chapter, arguably, are the most important, and literally, by number, but also by content, the center of the Gospel of Matthew. That is, everything is about to hinge and turn upon what we find in what we saw last week in chapter 15 and what we find this week and the next week in chapter 16. In fact, if you want to look with me as you open Matthew chapter 16, uh, don't be afraid of the table of contents. If you, if you can grab one of those blue paperback Bibles in the, chair, uh, in, the ch- in the tray of the chair in front of you, that's our gift to you. But find Matthew chapter 16. If you skip ahead from verses 1 through 12, they'll be reading today, and you see verse 21, there's a a phrase there that marks the turning point of the entirety of the gospel. In verse 21, it says, from that time. What, What happened? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and what? Be killed, and on the third day be raised. Up to this point, Jesus has been introducing himself by his teaching and miraculous works and his powerful demonstration of God's power in his life. And things are about to turn. And many of the other gospels fit into this category. They're they're basically passion narratives, narratives of the death and resurrection of Jesus that are simply packed into a, a, a framework of another story. So think of it, if you're watching a movie, right, um, and, and there, like something goes into slow-mo, that's what's about to happen. The entirety of the Gospel of Matthew is about to go into slow-mo. We've been flying through the last few years, like in, in, the, in the last year and a half, we've flown through several years of Jesus' public ministry, and starting in the next couple of weeks, it's like, whoa, everything's going to slow down. And for the rest of the book of Matthew, all the way to chapter 28, it's only going to cover a short span of time where Jesus returns to Jerusalem, is betrayed, crucified, and resurrected. So here we are in the turning point. Here we are in one of the most important parts of the Bible where where Jesus, at least according to Matthew, says and does some things that are earth-shattering, that will turn the course of his ministry and his purpose on the earth. So beginning in verse 1, let's read the 12 verses from Matthew chapter 16 as we see the the setup from where Jesus has been in Galilee and this is his quite literally the epilogue of his ministry in Galilee next week he's going to go uh, he's going to go somewhere else he's going to go to Caesarea Philippi further to the north but he won't return to Galilee his hometown right where Bethlehem Nazareth where he's from he won't return there until he is resurrected in, in Matthew chapter 28. So these are the last words to his own people, the people of Galilee, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs 
of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I want to begin with a question that will set the trajectory for understanding this text. How do you tell time? How do you tell time? Maybe another way to say that is, what time is it and how do you know? What time is it and how do you know? What, what, by what measure do you know what time it is? I'll introduce you to at least three different ways and uh, of ways of telling time, and at least one of them is through a, I have many friends and family. Uh, I won't name any of them, or whether they're actually friends or family. You'll just have to wonder. Maybe it's you. Who have an amazing ability to show up for everything five minutes late. I mean, five minutes late to everything. It doesn't matter. Hey, we're going to do this thing at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.05 a.m., right there, boom. Let's meet at noon, 12.05, boom, right? Let's meet at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 4.05, right? It's like, and, and here's what I say, we're just, we're on their time. Uh, and I would, this is where I would interject their name, but I'm not going to. But like, oh, we're on so-and-so time, right? And it doesn't matter what the thing is. It, it's amazing at how precisely late they are to everything. Almost exactly five minutes. On the other hand, uh, if you think of living on their time, I also experienced some of this. Uh, if, if maybe some of you, this will, this will be very helpful. Like, this is a helpful rebuke for us as Westerners. And, uh, uh, but uh, I experienced very briefly some, a few weeks in Nepal. And, and we lived on Nepali time. Or many of you, if you live from an Eastern culture, you know time is measured very differently. Right? And so uh, we took a, a mission team for a few weeks to Nepal to help serve a church planter who was planting these local churches. It's really amazing. Um, and, and we got a healthy rebuke from them because I kept asking, like I we would go and teach and I would preach and it was really cool. Uh, but I would ask like, Hey, um, when, when, are, when am I going to preach at, at X thing over here? And he, and my pastor Ruben, my friend, pastor Ruben, he'd be like, whenever you're ready, like whenever you preach, that's when you will preach. Like, Oh, I got it. 
In fact, one of the Sundays, I had the ability to preach at three different ones of the churches that they had planted, each of those congregations. So we, we, uh, we went to one place, drove to the other. Uh, and so this is all, I mean, almost, almost all day. And it's well after lunch. By the time I get to the third congregation, I get there and I ask my translator, um, and these people are just having a good time sitting there. And I was like, how long have these people been waiting? And he was like, oh, it's probably since about an hour after sunrise. They had been sitting there for five hours. Now, here's the most amazing part. Not a single one of them looked impatient. They were just like, yeah, we'll start when we start. Whenever this guy gets here, we're going to start. I don't know. And that was quite a rebuke for, uh, for, for a Westerner. who. And, and I received that rebuke like, seriously, why are you so impatient? Why are you in such a hurry? Right? Calm down. Slow down. And so some of my African brothers and sisters, same way, and if you're going like Eastern culture, same way, um, they have a healthy rebuke of like, slow down, okay, stop with this. Because after all, we were on Nepali time. When do you do this? Whenever. We do it when we do it. Here's the last person I'll introduce to you. Uh, this is a friend or family member who I will not name. And this is uh, everything is 15 minutes from now time. Right? Uh, hey, when are you going to be here? 15 minutes. Like, have you even taken a shower yet? No. I'll be there in 15 minutes. What? Like, how, like, where are you? Oh, I'm about 15 minutes out. No, no, no. Geographically, where are you? I'll be there in 15 minutes. You know this person? We're just on their time, right? It doesn't matter what it, doesn't matter what it is. We're not going to do it for another 15 minutes, which you know doesn't mean 15 minutes. So, friend, how do you tell time? How do you know what time it is? Culturally. How do you know what time it is? Even today. What mechanism do you use to measure what time it is? How do you know what is appropriate now and next? How do you know what time it is? And Jesus is, in essence, saying that here. They demand a sign, and Jesus says, you are not able to tell what time it really is. Now is the time, Jesus says, for the forgiveness of sins, for spiritual and physical healing, for restoration and redemption for the lost, for the welcome of the wanderer and the outsider. Now is the time for such things because Jesus has lived the perfectly righteous life that you could not live in our place for our sake. He has died the atoning and sacrificial death that you and I could not pay in our place and for our sake. He was raised on the third day in our place and for our sake, ascended, now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I in our place and for our sake, and he will return to make all things new, to restore all that is broken in our place and for our sake. It is Jesus' time. That's what time it is. So much so that if you think that now is the time for something other than the glory of Jesus and his redemptive work in you and me and in the world, then that belief will quietly and invisibly work into everything and turn everything into a cause for sorrow. It's Jesus' time and the sign is his perfect life, atoning death, victorious resurrection and ascension, and his imminent return. And if you need something else, Jesus says, beware. If that's not good enough, if that's not enough or in fact too much, then Jesus says, beware. Beware. Like leaven, 
your inability to see this as a time for the glory and redemptive work of Jesus will quietly and insidiously rob everything that is good and joyful and turn it into something of eternal despair. So as the epilogue to Jesus' Galilean ministry, we see a contrast. Last week we saw in chapter 15 and verse 30 that great crowds came to him. And they were bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they what? Glorified the God of Israel. So in chapter 15, we see a group of people who see the miraculous works of Jesus that the Gospel of John only refers to as signs. The crowds see Jesus and what he's doing, and they glorify God. They, wow, this is it. This, even then, we saw an outsider, right? This, this powerful work of, of God to, for this Canaanite woman who's an outsider who comes, and she even knows what time it is. She says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Help me, Right? I'm not even worthy to receive it, but, but yet she somehow gets it. They got the signs, and so you're almost left wondering, like, oh, this is it. People are starting to get it. They get the signs. They're starting to get who Jesus is. And the contrast we find in verse 1 of chapter 16 is that the religious leaders of the day, the, the two warring or competing parties of, of the religious leadership in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees said that's not good enough. In contrast to the, the glory that, that happened in the previous chapter, these people are like, no, we want more. This is not enough. Now, this isn't the first time we've met the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew chapter 3, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, as Jesus goes out to John the Baptist, even John the Baptist says when he saw them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out, to see him, to check on him, right? Similar to what we see here and also last chapter. He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this isn't the first time we've seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in effect, opposing what it is that was going on. And they come out to demand a sign. So here's what I think you'll see in this first section. Jesus is the sign of our times and the sign for our times. They come out demanding a sign. The ones that Jesus had given evidently were not good enough. And they looked and they found an excuse to dismiss him. And Jesus responds by showing them that they have the basic ability to tell time via the weather. I don't know enough about judging the color of the clouds to even begin to expound upon what's being described here. Uh, I, I, I rely on probably like many of you uh, weather apps and the weather channel and local news to discern the weather. Um, but think of it as the way that they were evidently obviously able to tell what the weather was going to be like today showed that they had a basic idea. Uh, they, it's not that they were incapable of looking around and figuring out what was happening. But he says that you evidently have the ability to do that with respect to the weather or the time of day, but you don't have the ability to do that with spiritual, eternal things. 
You have the ability to tell time temporally, but not the ability to tell time spiritually or eternally. They could not read spiritual signs, eternal signs. They could see the coming of the weather, but they could not see the coming of God's kingdom. And so the teaching and the miracles, or even the kindness of Jesus, right, to fulfill Isaiah 58, to, to bring the sin of God's people to their attention so that they would experience atonement and forgiveness, even that apparently was not enough. And so we're invited here to consider one of the evidences one of the evidences of what God was doing here is the spiritual signs that are eternal in nature. And as a result then, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and also for us, Jesus then is the sign of our times. Did you hear what he said? He, he makes a callback to something that he explained a few chapters earlier. A, a wicked and evil and adulterous generation. Now this is, that may not sound like a really harsh rebuke, but he's using language right out of their Old Testament law. He's using language right out of Deuteronomy to where it's, he's using their words against them. He, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. He is rebuking them, skewering them, and saying, in essence, you want more rather than what he said in a few chapters before, the sign of Jonah, namely a miraculous deliverance from the depths to demonstrate God's ability to redeem and restore. The sign he explains a few chapters earlier, which will be that the Son of Man will be like Jonah in the depths three days and then not. So I ask you again, do you know what time it is? And how do you tell? For the Christian, if you want to know what time it is, you look at Jesus. We are in the age of Jesus. And you, like the, the only watch or calendar you need or weatherman you need is Jesus. It is always Jesus' time. Now is a time for the redemption of the lost, for the welcoming of the wanderer, for, for the adoption of the outsiders we've seen for the last several chapters. What time is it? It's Jesus' time. It's the sign of Jonah raised from the dead, Jesus' time. He is all and in all. He is the fulfillment of all things. In him all things hold together. At any given moment, at any given instant, it is Jesus' time. And if you want to know what time it is, what is the proper response, friend, we look to Jesus. He's the one who tells us what time it is. He is all in all. He is the sacrifice once for all. And yet, what we find here are two groups of people that reject that. They're introduced to us as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So today I kind of have to give you like a, a crash course on what is a Pharisee and what is a Sadducee. But in essence, and we'll come back to it, that this is a very strange pairing. Now, it's not the strangest of the pairings that happen in the Gospel of Matthew. The most, the, the strangest, the, the, the most awkward of pairings and the most incompatible pairings is that the Pharisees will start to team up with the Roman elites. The Roman, right, they'll team up with Herod. They'll even team up later with Pontius Pilate and the Romans to kill Jesus. 
But in this case, these are two different factions or political or philosophical or theological parties in Israel. Uh, The historian Josephus tells us that these parties were were thriving about the time a couple of centuries before Jesus and at least a good century after. And there was was three main parties that were were told about, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Essenes are like uh, probably closely uh, tied to, say, like John the Baptist. They were out in the wilderness. They were the smallest of the party, which makes sense. And, uh, and through them, we find uh, centuries later what we, what we are called the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we, we find that evidently they had a loyalty to Scripture such that some of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the Bible were preserved in caves where these, these people were living out and protecting them, right? But the two major factions were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it is no stretch to simply think of them as your hardcore conservative and hardcore liberal friends. Here's why. The Pharisees looked at the law of God since the restoration or, you know, pseudo after the, right, after, after being exiled and the restoration of the temple built by Herod and ultimately the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees looked at the law of God and thought that's not good enough. And we already know this, we've seen this before. They added what they call oral laws or extra laws, the fence laws that kept you from breaking the big laws. Now, Jesus has no problem breaking those laws. We saw that. He, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I don't have to follow your man-made laws. We don't, have to, we don't have to do what you say, right? So, so think of it. These are the people who ultimately believed that they wanted to go back and to restore Israel to its prominence, right? These are the make Israel great again friends, right? These, and they believe that by, by passing, I'm not kidding, by passing of laws, by adding to them, by strict adherence to their nationalist laws, they would, they would have, therefore like kind of become the righteous people that God ultimately intended them to be. And so they added laws. And so when Jesus came along, what was, it, what was their complaint to him? This is not good enough. There needs to be more. The Sadducees, on the other hand, rejected most of the law. And they, they had teamed up with the, let's say, the, the flow of the culture in the day. That is, they teamed up even with Herod to build the temple. And so most of what they had done was, most of their practice, their religious practice, was centered around the temple. But the problem was that it came about by simply capitulating to the Romans, the pagans. They basically made a deal with the devil. They made the deal with the the powers and the flows of culture in order to get what they wanted. And both of them hated each other. Again, think they they saw opposite extremes as the the way to be God's people. For them, uh, for for one group, it was to to see themselves as above and separated from uh, from history, separated from these people. In fact, that's what the word Pharisee means. And for the other ones, they they thought the the way to be God's people is to partner with the flow of the culture. Do do you hear it? Can you hear kind of that progressive and also like, like this kind of separatist, this view? Now, these are perfectly good ideas to get, I don't know, certain things in the world. They, they do accomplish things. They're not inherently, I believe, evil. But think of the fact that what would it take for your most radical Republican conservative friends and your most radical liberal progressive friends to get together and team up and agree on something 100%? That's the picture here. As if people from radically different parts of the world, right? People from radically different worldviews agreed on one thing. Jesus is to be stopped. This Jesus is an enemy to our camp. And as a result, you see, they try to challenge Jesus. They oppose Jesus. 
And later Jesus uses this in the next section to say, watch out, this is what happens. Think of it this way, the sign of God's kingdom is Jesus, who has now made a way for humanity to be made right with God. That's the sign of the times. That God who has looked at you and I and our, our weak and feeble and sinful and depraved state and, and not chosen to cast us off but to come be with us and for us in Christ and draw, draw us to himself. And this is the source of joy. This is the source of comfort. This is the meaning we have in life now. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come along and say, yeah, but... This kind of starts to lead into the the teaching on the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus is the perfect righteousness of God, credited by grace through faith. Grace through faith. That is that Jesus has accomplished for us, all those who would turn to him and trust in him, all that is needed to be made right, all that is needed to be reunited with the goodness of God, our creator. The Pharisee, we usually describe him as a, a self-righteous or legalistic person, would, would say that ultimately our righteousness is found in our adherence to the law. That's what legalism is. It's the belief that ultimately you can by your own work and you can by your own ability, giftedness, whatever, disposition, you can by something in and of yourself be reunited with or attain the good life, enlightenment, and the welcome of God. The Sadducees went about it similarly, but just kind of instead of adding to the law, they wanted to take away from it. That is that we can, adhe- we can find God by simply ridding ourselves of these supernatural trappings. Now, you hear this, right? Jesus is the perfect righteousness of God credited by grace through faith. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Think of it this way. Jesus is the perfect righteousness of God credited by grace through faith. The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is to look at that and say, yeah, but. It's to look at who God is and how he has come to redeem us and restore us and to look at it and say, if you're a Pharisee, you look at the finished work of Jesus and you say, that's not enough. If you're a Sadducee, you look at the finished work of Jesus and you say, that's a bit much. And so, friend, it's Jesus' time. It's Jesus. This this is what time that you and I live in history. This is it. This is the sign of the time is that God has not abandoned us but come to be with us and for us. And this changes everything. This gives us identity. And yet I know in your heart and mind there is something in us that goes... Yeah, but what about, right? But what about this thing that's really important? It's Jesus' time. And, and I know our desire is to, to look at this and say, but, but have you looked at the things going on? Have, have, you seen, have you seen what time it is? And what a provocative, provocative and powerful thing for Jesus to, to receive and endure the collective and united opposition from people who had an agenda. It's Jesus' time, friend. And I know what you will say, and in my heart I say the same thing. But what about, yeah, but, right? Like, 
hey, it's time for you to talk about Jesus with your neighbors, with your family, even amongst us, right? It's time for you to talk about, think about, sing about Jesus. And I know what you'll say. Have you seen the news? Like we're on the verge of like a World War III with, with China and, and Russia, right? I mean, like, what about it's Jesus time? I don't know what you'll say. Okay, it's Jesus time, but have you seen what's happening in our culture? Have you seen what's happening? Have you heard the conversation around X topic or Y topic, or the, right? Have you heard this conversation? Shouldn't we be talking about it's Jesus time? It's Jesus time. Think of it this way, even now, right? Like this is the part in the sermon where you really wish I would say the thing that you really want me to talk about. Right, I'm over here talking about Jesus and his glory and how good he is, how he can restore all things, how in him all things hold together, how every, like everything we need. Right? We sang about it just a minute ago, right? We sang about it. You made it, maybe did it on accident, but right, like, right? Jesus, you get this picture that, if, uh, that Paul tells the Romans, like if, if, Christ is not spared, if God has not spared his own son, how will he not also give us everything, Right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? And all the other things will fall into place. They'll be added to you. You get it? And I'm over here saying like, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the meaning of existence. He is the end all be all. In him, all things hold together. All things fall to him. All glory goes to him. And yet, you, this is where you're going like, yeah, but, but what about? And friend, that isn't to dismiss the what about. It's probably an important topic. But in the words of Jesus, beware. Beware. That little what about serves as a really lousy savior. It tricks you into thinking that it can. Beware. Beware. That it isn't ultimately looking at God and saying, I know better than you. Your plan to restore and redeem all things is not good enough. I need another sign. I need something else. And so, friend, it's Jesus' time. He alone can restore and repair all that's broke. Right? Even now, the thing, that, like, the thing on your heart that's like, bothering you, that's frustrating you, like, I, I wouldn't ever want to dismiss it. Right? it I, I have no doubt it, it's causing you distress. It's, it's, it's wearing you out. I have no doubt in that. And whatever that is, friend, I want to invite you, tell it to Jesus. Bring it to him. See what he says. See what grace he offers. See what restoration he gives to you. See how the freedom he offers is better than anything that you and I can conjure up for ourselves. And how you respond to these other things that come and go in history and time and place, right? That your watch or your weather app could tell you are derivative. Ultimately, they're secondary, tertiary, they're way down the list at Jesus. The Pharisees hated this. The Pharisees rejected the idea that God's righteousness could come from God alone. In essence, the Pharisees represent what I would argue is essentially the basis of every world religion, which is that there is this separation that we feel between God and ourselves and our, our existence is to be devoted to building a bridge to God. Build a bridge to God. Do what you can to get to God. Right? And in fact, maybe some of you might even 
I, I, I don't want to like presuppose anything, but you might even be present here in this, in this place right now trying to build something back to God. It, every world religion ultimately says, here's what you must do. Here are the five pillars that you must submit to, right? Here's the way of being or the way to enlightenment, right? Here's the things you ought to commit yourself to, to right? You get the idea. Every world religion is this way. And the Pharisees ultimately had taken the, the grace and mercy of the one true God and boiled them into all the, rest of the world religion, all the rest of the world religions. Namely, that there's a brokenness in the world and you can fix it. You can do it. And that feels good, doesn't it? It feels really good. You're capable. You're good enough. You're smart enough. People like you, right? Like this, this idea that like you have what it takes. You can do this. And over and over and over again, the, the refrain of the revealed word of God is that a fool is the one who does what's right in his own eyes. There is a way that seems right to us. And that way does not lead to God. It leads to death and destruction. And Jesus comes, and I hope we come, with an earth-shattering message that the bridge back to God does not come from you. The bridge back to God comes from God. That God does not, he's not sitting up there hoping you and I will figure out a way to get back to him. God has come in the sign of Jonah to take on our sin, be buried, and raise the third day. The bridge is built, it's done, and Jesus says from the cross, it's finished. It's finished, that's it. And God has made a way. God has done everything that we need to be restored to him. Everything. A couple of warnings then. As you think about Pharisees, Pharisees ultimately believe that the righteousness that is required is something that they can do in themselves. And I don't want you to think badly about them. I, I shared this before, but every time the Pharisees come up in the Gospels, and it's all the time, be careful, it's a trap, okay? It's a trap. They're in there uh, because Jesus evidently wasn't that worried about, like, stay away from you. Know, think about, like, if I were to say how to live a holy life, most of us in our pharisaical heart would say to them, like, you got to stay away from the sinners. Sinners. Ooh, you know who I'm talking about. Right? And Jesus apparently had no problem sending people to him, to them and hanging out with them. The warning he gives is not to stay away from sinners. Evidently, he was not that worried about that. He was worried, stay away from the teaching of the Pharisees. Stay away from something that, like yeast, leaven, subtly, silently, and insidiously transforms one thing into another. Now, yeast and leaven in and of itself isn't evil, after all. Uh, sourdough bread is delicious. It's amazing. Thank you for all the people who give me sourdough bread. Keep doing it, right? All you bread, all you bread nerds, mm, I love you. Keep doing it. But throughout the Old Testament, leaven or yeast, as most of you bread nerds know, has a way of forming and growing and transforming something into something else without you even knowing it. It doesn't silently. It doesn't, you don't even have to do anything. It just, it does itself. I learned, I mean, my bread nerds taught me this. Did you know you don't even have to buy yeast if you just leave? I'm just, I'm just all you bread nerds are like, duh. But I just blew my mind a few months ago, right? Because I tried to be a bread nerd and failed and I'm taking a break from that at the moment. <laughs> Working on myself. <laughs> If you just put flour and water anywhere, did you know naturally occurring yeast from the air will start to infiltrate and you will have your own starter, a leaven? You don't even have to do anything. 
Again, okay, that, that's shocking to me, just not you, fine. It makes the metaphor blow up in my face here. It just kind of makes my head explode. Maybe not you. That's your, you make bread. The idea that leaven insidiously, quietly turns something else, turns something into something else is a theme throughout the Old Testament to point to the insidiousness of sin, of imperfection and impurity, that that's what sin does. Without trying, like, if you just leave it alone, if you do nothing, it will take good things, godly things, and turn them into something else. And Jesus is saying, when you look at the grace and goodness of God moving toward us, and like, like the sign of Jonah, and you find yourself saying, that's not enough, or that's too much, then without even knowing it, it will creep in and rob all the things that would cause us joy. Right? The love and grace of God, and it will turn it into something eternally awful. But when you talk about the Pharisees that way, it's a trap, right? Because Pharisees are self-righteous legalists. But even then, even as I say that, you get it, right? The minute you talk about Pharisees that way, you're being one. It's, it's almost impossible for me to even talk to you about it. Like self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees, right? And, and even then you're like, I think, were you being pharisaical about the Pharisees? Like, I think I kind of was, right? You know, Paul, who will deliver me from this body of, this wretched body of sin, right? So be careful how you think about the Pharisees, but there's also a reason why. They prayed. In John chapter 5, it says that they searched the scriptures they poured over the scriptures because, they, because Jesus says they thought that in them they would find eternal life. They loved, according to Matthew chapter 23, they loved to pray, or Matthew chapter 5, they, they would pray in the crowds of people, right? Imagine right now if I just said like, you know, I don't even want to do that. It just feels awful. I was a pastor of an established church, and the accepted practice before I got there was like at the conclusion of the worship service, the pastor would just like randomly pick someone in the congregation to close in prayer, and, yo, yeah, and, and, and I was like, well, I'm young and dumb. I don't want to change everything. I guess we'll try this. But then I thought, like, that's awful. Um, and so that was one change. Imagine I did that, right? And imagine I, like, just, like, mm, boom, it just pointed at you. And it's like, you, stand, pray. The Pharisee goes, ha-ha, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> right? He's not afraid like you and I are. The, the, the Pharisee wants to pray in public. The Pharisee gives. The Pharisee tithes. Matthew 23, the Pharisee is evangelistic. It says that they traveled across sea and land to make a single convert. They're missional. Don't disparage the Pharisees. They tithe on everything, right? If they, if they were walking along the street and they found a $10 bill, they would immediately think, I need to tithe at least a dollar of this. It says that they were clean on the outside. They cleaned up the, the cup and the plate. They were outwardly beautiful in appearance. So stop for just a minute. They prayed, Right? They, they searched the scriptures, they tithed, they looked beautiful, they sound amazing. If they were here this morning, you would love them. You would absolutely, oh, this is, I love this person. Look at all the things that they do. The problem was that they did them in a way that was hypocritical. The word hypocrisy comes from the, the word that is a stage actor. They were doing all of that to play a part. They were doing all of that to get something from God. They were doing all of that to achieve the culmination of God's kingdom. And it subtly undermined that kingdom. And Jesus, more than sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes and the like, says, beware. 
beware. Jesus is the perfect righteousness of God credited to us, credited to us by grace through faith. But the leaven, that insidious, God-hating, rebellious attitude in us says like, I want something else. For the Pharisees, it's driven by pride, right? Because after all, if you're not that bad and you're pretty awesome, you don't really need a savior, right? You just need another shot, right? Just give me, a, give me another chance. I'll do this. And beware. That's where it starts. And so they were all about appearances. And so they would go above and beyond for appearances, After all, if if you're not that bad, then cleaning yourself up is good enough. For the Sadducees, it was different. The perfect righteousness of God imputed to us shows up in our own Sadduceeism when we say that's a bit much. Right? Even if, if, if if, if you hear me or someone else talk about our sin and how awful it is and how it separates us from a perfect God, a Sadducee goes like, really though? We're not that, I mean, at least we're not as bad as them. It's not that big a deal. Right? Or, or maybe, maybe you, you kind of think of it like, if your sin's not that bad, then, then and, and, and ev- inevitably God doesn't really need to be that good, and you don't need that much grace. And all the Christians going on and on again about the grace that God gives, that's our one true hope. We sang about it just a moment ago, I need you, I need you. And in your heart, the Sadducee goes like, hey, I'll be all right though. And the good news of Jesus doing all that we are ne- that's needed to restore us to the Father, the Pharisee says, that's not enough. And the Sadducee says, that's too much. And so, friend, beware. Beware of how this insidious thing turns the gospel into something else. Jesus' point was this. The religious were just as awful on the inside as the pagans were on the outside. And after all, maybe... Maybe in your mind, you're thinking you're not that bad, but we come to find out that grace really is indispensable because the law of God is completely inflexible. So let me land on a few different things that I think will be encouragements for you. Now, again, as I've shared, I have great resources I can pass on to you. Um, My my world was turned upside down from a cassette tape of a sermon I heard about uh, the Pharisees from 1990. Um, That's a resource I I can't really share with you. I don't have it, and I wouldn't have a way to play it, but like, here, here's my own observation in the scripture, and also just in my own life of hopefully caring for and leading Christians, some, I think, tangible ways that Jesus is warning us against the Pharisee. Ultimately, the Pharisee is 100% completely fixated upon appearances. Their identity and their hope is in their appearance. That's it. They care the most about how they appear to others. That was their obsession. Their prayer, we saw this, and we'll see this in Matthew 23, the woes to these scribes and Pharisees, they ultimately were all about appearance. They were all about their own performance and how it looked. And so a couple of questions. One, do you feel the weight of that in your own heart? Are you even now conscious of how you appear to others? Is that a fixation for you? then, friend, that will rob you of the joy that we have and are offered and promised in Jesus, is that we are fully made right. Here's a second question. Have you ever been to a gym, a fitness center? Have you ever been there, right? Stop for a minute, picture it. 
what is on all of the walls. You get it? Mirrors everywhere. Because after all, what's the point of doing a workout if you can't see it? Right? Look at me. See how I look. Friend, here, as silly as that might be, that might be what many of you think of even this morning as you attend. You might be here just trying to see how you look and affect your appearance. And I want to tell you, beware. I will insidiously rob you of the joy in Jesus. Rather than admiring our own work, friend, we get to stop and rest in and admire his. Pharisees were obsessed with their appearance. Appearance even to what I believe happens in Phariseeism is that we create a God in our own image. Our, our one pastor say it this way, that Phariseeism was born at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. This fixation with works, with accomplishing, with performing, with doing something on our own rather than receiving the good gifts of God freely by his grace. What we also see is that all philosophies and tribes of the world hold one thing in common that unites them, opposition to Jesus. All worldly philosophies and tribes, oh, they don't admit this, but down deep they all agree on one thing, Jesus will take everything. And the Pharisees who reject the signs, Jesus turns into a sign. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't see the sign, but then Jesus turns them into a sign by saying to you and me, beware. Beware, they are a sign. And in their obsession with performance and trying to do and accomplish, they have robbed God of what he has done and accomplished. Uh, the way I, when, when, I, when I try to like train pastors or train preachers in preaching, communicating the gospel, um, I learned something from my grandfather, um, and I call it the cemetery test. Here's how you know if it's, if, here's how you know if what you're saying is pharisaical or sadduceical. I made that up. Uh, does it pass the cemetery test? My, my, my grandfather once shared with me, uh, and this is saying something because I got to, I got to speak at his funeral, uh, which is simultaneously one of the most awful and most amazing things I've ever, I've ever got a chance to do. And here's what he said. He says, if it don't preach at a funeral, it don't preach. Yes, that's how he talked. Uh, for emphasis. And so when you think about what you have to say to the world, the good news of God's redemptive work in Christ, ask yourself this, is what I'm believing and trusting in, is what I'm, even in this case, proclaiming going to pass the cemetery test? And the cemetery test is this. Can you take what you believe and can you take it to the cemetery and it be good news? I mean, right now, like imagine this whole sermon is transplanted and I'm standing in the cemetery, sound system and all, and projecting it to the cemetery. Is what I'm going to say to those people good news? And friend, when you are dead, there is only one thing that will help you, and that is the resurrecting power of Jesus. So ask yourself, is what you trust in, believe in, and hope in, does it pass the cemetery test? Is what you leave here thinking about, praying about, loving, does it pass the cemetery test? Will it work for today or this year or this country or this, right, or this, this century? Or will it work forever? And friend, I just want to compel you, the subtle, right, the subtle, insidious, silent thing that would rob you of real joy will never pass the cemetery test. And, we, and it robs the gospel of its power. And I, friend, I have good news. I have good news. 
Did you know this, this, thing, this thing that Jesus has done for you and for me is good even when, especially when you are six feet under? And I know many of you are younger in the room and you're thinking, that's a long ways away. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Fair, maybe you're right. But what if you're wrong? Friend, is what you trust in, what you hope in, will it outlast death? Because the sign that you wish you got, did you hear what Jesus said you'll only get? The sign of Jonah. The sign of life through death. So friend, are there places where you wish the Bible and Jesus would say more? Me too. There's a million things I wish he'd have been explicit about. But just recognize in those moments, like leaven, we're tempted to think that Jesus isn't sufficient. That we somehow need to add to his work. There's something you need to do. This is what this is really about. Or friend, are there places in the Bible and the work of Jesus where you wish Jesus had said less? You wish he hadn't been so harsh on certain sin? Talking about hell and condemnation? Me too. Me too. I wish he hadn't said that either. But recognize that can be a subtle and silent and insidious thief of our joy. And then we begin to see one another through the complete and finished work of Jesus. Complete and seated with Jesus in the heavenly realm. Complete. Pharisees don't do that. Pharisees, the Pharisee in all of us looks and is disgusted, right? Because after all, if you've created a God in your own image, then one, I heard one pastor say it this way, that the Pharisee ultimately worshipped a great Pharisee in the sky. That ultimately the, the Pharisee was fixated by an image of God that he, they had created. A God who, whose only hope was to give law and crush. Well, friends, see the sign of Jonah. That isn't what Jesus has shown us that the Father is like for those of us who have turned and trusted in him. Watch out. Watch out. It's not what you think. The Pharisees were screaming out the Sadducees, watch out for the leftist, latitudinarian, lenient, lenient, accommodationist, cultural conformist, permissive, unorthodox, indulgent, and compromising people. That's what the Pharisees thought were the worst. The Sadducees looked at the Pharisees, and you watch out for them, the rightist, populist, ethno-nationalist, cultural warrior, legalistic, fundamentalist Pharisees. That's what the Sadducees thought were the worst. And notice both of those ways of being, both of those tribes, both of those camps, teamed up to oppose Jesus, and Jesus ultimately was the hope for both of them. The Pharisee says, this is not enough. The Sadducee says, this is too much. So friend, put the dot, connect the dots. The rejection of Jesus as the all-sufficient sign of and for our time will silently and insidiously transform the greatest joy into eternal sorrow. When you look at Jesus and say, that's not good enough. I mean, just pick, think about that. Think about how that would come across to you. Imagine you gave up your one and only child. Imagine giving up the thing you love, the thing that you adore. Imagine offering it up to someone and that person saying, nah, this one's not good enough. Do you hear the rebellious nature of this? It seems on the surface pious and religious, but ultimately it has at its heart undermining the grace of God. 
It says, I don't want your gift or your pity. I want to earn this for myself. I want to be God. And that thing that grows in you and I, that thing that's insidious and silent, I want to warn you, will rob you of the joy that is unspeakable that Jesus has purchased for you and for me. So friend, beware. Beware. Beware of the things that would rob us of the soul-satisfying good news of Jesus. Beware of the things that might be good in this world. Tribes and ideas and philosophies and, I don't know, whatever it is for you, the thing you really love, or again, the thing you really wish I would say something about right now. Like, God has allowed these things to exist. They're probably not inherently evil, but just recognize, beware. More than anything else, this is what Jesus wants us to beware of. Not beware of hanging out with sinners. Beware of the insidiousness. The insidiousness of the leaven of believing that you don't need God's grace, that you can do it on your own. In just a moment here, we're going to respond in a powerful way. The church responds to the insidious nature of sin and how it creeps in and makes us want to trust in ourselves historically by what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. And so just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to prepare our hearts to take. You'll see the elements prepackaged around you in a minute. We'll prepare them, but right now we're going to prepare our hearts. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that ultimately we are going to get together and proclaim in communion the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the sufficiency and the satisfying nature of the sacrifice, the atoning work of Jesus' death on our behalf. He says this is ultimately something that if you take in an unworthy manner, you'll be, instead of celebrating life, you'll be drinking to your own condemnation. So friend, as we practice it, the Lord's table is welcome to all of those who are baptized, repentant believers in Jesus. And if that's not you, I'm so glad you're here. Just think of it. This would be a very unsatisfying snack. It would be silly. And I would much rather you look through the lens of the wafer and the juice to see the satisfying and atoning work of Jesus. And so for you this morning isn't to take of these elements, it's to turn to him, to trust in him, to really see him as the sign of our times. And so let's pray together as we prepare to receive the declaration of this all-satisfying gift of God in the body and blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you have come to do all that we could not do for ourselves. God, help us, even as we think about the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Matthew, not to become Pharisaical. Uh, instead, let this be an invitation to, to trust in and hope in you and to be open and honest in the ways that we can confess our own Pharisaical and Sadduceical tendencies in our hearts. God, I confess to you there are places where I, I wish you had said more and I wish you had said less. But Lord, I confess those are places where I think I'm Lord and I could do better. Help me see the depth of my own sin so that I would realize and understand the gravity and expanse of your grace. Thank you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now all there is to do is to accept the prophetic gifts of Ezekiel, Jeremiah. You will replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. You will be our God. You will dwell with us. You will do all these things. Lord, forgive us for the times when we want to do instead of receiving as a gift what you have done. Thank you that these prophetic promises are fulfilled for us in Jesus. Now, Lord, may our observation as we remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us in the Lord's table, be a reminder of the sufficient and 
satisfying gift of grace that you've given us in Jesus. Amen.